Good morning. You're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka, also streaming live on newhavenindependent.org. You're tuning in to Mornings with Mubaraka, where we look at national issues from a local level through a lens of diversity. I want to welcome you to the show, and I want to remind you that you can join us on Facebook or Twitter. Just use the hashtag MWM Radio, hashtag Be A Voice, and I will find you, and we will uh, try to continue the conversation online if you have any comments or um, any questions during or after the show. So today we are talking about Islamophobia, politics, and Muslim American women. And it is a topic that obviously I'm sure we've seen um, in different arenas and the media, on the internet, um, and maybe you've actually you actually know a Muslim woman. So we are going to dive into this topic because it is, of course, current and very important. We are in one of the most divisive elective cycles, arguably in American history, between the Islamophobic rhetoric of the Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump and the things that are happening um, all over the world, such as in France. There is this um, backlash of, of Islamophobia. And violence against Muslims have skyrocketed in recent years, especially since the Paris attacks. It's estimated that 80 percent of the attacks after Paris um, that happened um, to Muslims were actually on Muslim women, particularly because they are the visible factor of Islam, particularly Muslim women who wear hijab. Um, For an increasing number of hijabi Muslim women, Misogyny combined with Islamophobia is especially has an especially toxic effect. So we're going to talk about how we're dealing with that, how we're dealing with all of these things today and how it affects Muslim women um, as a whole. So today I am excited that we have two dynamic Muslim women with us here in the studio. We have Alicia Hernandez Strong and on, on the phone, we have Tahira Amatula Wadud. Thank you, ladies, for joining me. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So Tahira Amatula Wadud is an attorney who runs a law practice with the focus area of civil rights, specifically the protection of religious freedom and domestic relation law. Ms. Amatula Wadud was a White House invitee dis- Invitee December 2015, attending a ceremony entitled Celebrating and Protecting American America's Traditional Tradition of Religious Pluralism. Ms. Amatul Wadud is legal counsel for a Muslim congregation in New York and is an executive board member for CARE, the Council Amer- the Council of American Islamic Relations in Massachusetts. She has recently been named as the top woman in the in Law for Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. 2016. And here in the studio, we have Alicia Hernandez Strong, who is the president of Wesleyan University Muslim Student Association, where she organizes community service and fundraising events for her campus and the surrounding community. She is also the exec. She is also on the executive board of New Britain's Democratic Town Committee. Through this committee, she spends time registering people to vote, speaking at town council meetings, and advocating for different communities in her city. Currently, she's working with 
Muslim leaders across the state on voters registration campaign to urge Muslims to become more politically active and vote this November. So thank you for uh, joining me again. And I want to really dive into a conversation. So we're going to hit on a lot of little things. I think that um, we want to share with our listeners what it's like to pick the brain of a Muslim American woman. So, um, First question to you, Alicia, um, you ha- you're in the process of um, trying to encourage Muslims to vote. Uh, tell me how did that campaign start and why is that important? Yeah, um, so it started kind of two different ways. I think the more obvious way was the rise of Donald Trump and more specifically Islamophobia becoming a prevalent issue in American society with this pol- with this election cycle. And I really thought, you know, I've always been politically active, but I really thought it was important to now get my community active uh, because this is a very important election for us. Uh, having Donald Trump in the White House will will have very adverse effects, not just on the Muslim community, but a lot of communities across the country. And I thought it was really important um, to, for our community specifically to register. Um, and another reason why was at the local level. I live in New Britain and we have a sizable Muslim population there. Um, and there were certain people in our local government that aren't supporting Muslim interests or or supporting our local level combating Islamophobia. Um, And so it was kind of a dual thing, trying to urge people to get involved both in the national election that's coming up, but also in the local and state uh, politics that more directly affect our community. Mm. And and Tahira, I know that you also um, uh, work around um, voting and encouraging people to be in, in a part of the political process. How do you think that that is going to impact uh, the way that laws are, are made, the way if they're changed or is, is it at all? Or do we just support the current laws that that exist? I think we have a lot of um Local, uh, local races where candidates are themselves innovative and putting forth possible new changes in laws, whether that's on the local level. And on the, on the federal level, there's always proposals for resolutions and different laws that would enhance the lives of citizens. I'm very interested in supporting the candidate who uh, appreciates the need to sort of reaffirm the rights of worshipers in this country. And so there are some federal uh, initiatives to uh, maybe take a resolution and acknowledge the existence of Islamophobia and speak out against Islamophobia. So federal officials who are running, who support that resolution, I'm going to support regardless of where they are in the country. And on the local level, candidates who speak out against Islamophobia are definitely going to get my vote and get my support. And that means not only with the creation of those new laws, but also in making sure that the laws that we have on the books, which are very protective of, of religious rights and of, of, of First Amendment freedoms, are properly enforced, which is why you want to make sure that who you put into office in the um, law enforcement realms where those are elected officials are very, is very, very important. Who you're putting in, into your state representative positions is very, very important because we want to keep the pressure on those who are responsible for ensuring justice to do it in accordance with the law, to do it in a fair way. So, 
And and either of you can answer this. Do you think that um, there is a difference? So there's this there is this this argument of um, local le- elections are more important than national elections, and then there's also the vice versa. Do you think that there if if there has to be a priority of the two, is which one would you say is more important for people to really get involved in? Yeah. Um, so going around, especially in New Britain, but also other communities across the state, I always talk about the importance of local and state politics, actually, um, because with national politics, it really gets hyped up, especially in a presidential year. And it's on TV and it's on social media. But we forget that the governments and the local officials dire- most directly affect us. Um, the laws that are that are going to affect your community more directly are coming from the state and coming from the local level. Um, for example, there was talk in my community about making Eid, um, the Islamic holiday, a a holiday where kids are off from school. And that would come directly from the local level. Um, everything else, I think, from the national level is still important, absolutely. But it's more of a trickle-down effect, I think. Mm. Do you have anything to say to, to that, Tara? Yes, I totally agree. I think what happens is that the national uh, elections, the the presidential elections, definitely will get the attention of the voters. So every four years, you will, I think, have voters who are more likely to go to the polls. But voters can't underestimate the need for them to go to the polls during the off-presidential year cycle. And that's when voter um, activity tends to to be very, very lax. But again, you're allowing, by not voting, you're allowing people to come in, run for positions who may or may not represent your interests. Um, as a, I, I serve as a commissioner on the state's commission on the status of women, and we get to hear testimony from all over the Commonwealth from people who talk about how laws or policy impact them, particularly as women. And we had a woman testify once that she had taken in like a teenage, maybe her niece. She had taken in her niece. Her parents were unavailable to raise her. The child ends up finishing high school. It's very good. This this is a very working class family. The woman who's testifying um, was not very wealthy. So when the girl came, she came with um, having a food stamp benefit. So they kept food in the house. And when she got accepted to her college, they counted the food stamps as income, or they counted her college tuition as income against her food stamps, and they lost the food stamps. So she's telling us this story about how she took in this niece, and now, because she's gotten accepted into college, does not qualify for some minimal help that they need, and it's almost like no good deed goes unpunished. And all I was thinking about was what a horrible policy that was and how we needed to lobby our lawmakers to make sure that college tuition and financial aid assistance shouldn't count as income for for, for, for poor families. But if we are aware and we are using every opportunity we can to influence the local vote, then maybe we can change that. And that woman wouldn't be sitting there saying, now, how am I going to feed my kids and my niece? Mm, and, and so that that's that's a really strong story as to the importance of of local elections. I in Alicia, when you go around, particularly to the Muslim community and encouraging them to vote, are you finding them receptive? So and and what is generally the the turnout for Muslims are Muslim high voters, low voters? Um, and, and is there any pushback against voting? 
Yeah, from my understanding, um, Muslims have had a relatively low turnout. Um, but I actually have gotten a very positive reception going around to different Muslim communities. Um, and interestingly enough, it's not even Donald Trump that's motivating them. Uh, I have a story that I kind of tell everyone, even though it's a New Britain story, I tell all the communities I go to. Um, a few a few weeks ago, I spoke at a council meeting and I spoke about the importance of local and state leaders also denouncing the things Trump has been saying. Um, and while I was speaking, a Republican councilman walked out while I was speaking. And when he <laughs> returned, uh, he chastised me and he told me I shouldn't be saying those things about Donald Trump. This man also happens to represent a district where most of the Muslims in my community live. And he only won by about 25 votes. Um, so that that story right there is kind of shocking for a lot of communities like they look around and if everybody in that room had voted in that election, he wouldn't be there. And that really is kind of a wake up call for people like our vote actually matters because I think voters in general, not just Muslim voters, have this idea that their vote doesn't count or doesn't matter. But in reality, it really does, especially in the lower elections. Mm. So Tahir, you're in Massachusetts. Do you have a, a, yeah. a temperature on how Muslims vote there? Well, I my familiarity with the community is that where there may have been some apathy, people feel sometimes, and I think you might have this in, in communities where there are higher concentrations of folks who come from other countries or or have histories that come from other countries more recently, that there may be a little bit more apathy or more skepticism around the significance of their vote. Does it really matter? But what we're also seeing, I'm seeing from the administration, local leaders, Muslim leaders, um, reinforcing the need for their communities to vote. So I think there's no shortage of the message being given out, especially because some of these folks who might feel a little apathetic have children and their children are in, in schools and every single child who's a Muslim or who's being identified as Muslim in these local schools are experiencing some degree of bullying. So when your child starts to become a manifestation of what's wrong with this election cycle and this rhetoric, I think it motivates us as parents to do what we can. And someone is saying, be mindful in how you vote because that could change what happens in your child's classroom. I think that's what I'm seeing as a motivating factor in the local Muslim communities here in Western Massachusetts. Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to New Haven's Home for Community Radio, WNHHLP 103.5 FM on your radio dial and streaming live on newhavenindependent.org. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka, your Wednesday morning voice. Today, we are talking Islamophobia, politics, and Muslim American women with Tahira Amatuwadud, civil rights lawyer, and Alicia Hernandez-Strong, voting advocate. Um, tell me, that. so this one is, is, is for you, Tahira. Can you um, speak to a little bit, Is we know that Islamophobia had is something kind of like became a catch term before Donald Trump um, decided to run for president. It has, has it really increased or has the reporting of it increased? I think that's a really good question. So I think Islamophobia definitely increased in around 2007. And then I think became ridiculously, uh, 
out of control in 2015. And I think from 2015 to 2016, we hear more mainstream reporting of Islamophobic incidents. Because I think what happened was that when Muslims were being victimized and threatened with violence in Islamophobic attacks, there was sort of a media blackout. But now with the election, with all this attention and with the voice of Muslims themselves, especially with the use of social media, I think this has now become mainstream in reporting. So when mosque is mosque are threatened or people are hurt or people are killed, you're not seeing the media blackout that you had last year when the three students from North Carolina were massacred in their home and nobody reported on it for 12 hours. I don't think that's going to happen again because now there is this mobilization uh, that's sort of grassroots for Muslim communities, but also accepted in the mainstream media that when things happen to Muslims, it is going to be brought to the forefront of the American conscience. So, Alicia, we, being of our, the young generation, she's the college student here, do you think that there is a, what impact do you think social media has on both promoting and fighting against Islamophobia? So, um, Tierra brought up a really good point. I remember when that, th- when that specifically happened um, to the three young people in Chapel Hill, we found out about it and almost pushed and forced it on the media by having so much social media. Uh, it went viral, particularly in the Muslim community, and that kind of like pushed and forced it into the for- forefront. Do you see that that is something that uh, makes a difference for for young people? So is it more important for the, to be on the Internet or to go <laughs> to the media? <laughs> yeah, Um I think social media is actually putting us in a really unique and interesting position because a lot of people, especially a lot of young people, are no longer getting their news from traditional news sources. They're getting them online, um, which gives activists and especially activists against Islamophobia a really unique opportunity to, to fight against that on the Internet without having to go through corporate means or going through other means. Um, and I think that's that's really important. And that's why you see a lot more youth activism. And even myself, I use Facebook and Twitter to to push different initiatives and to talk about it. On the other side, um, the Internet is a wide place where anybody can go on. So you'll also have the Islamophobes going on and pushing their agenda. So it's an interesting place. But I, I definitely think you can you can use it in a positive way. And and my next question to you as well is, I think that there is um, a, a, this myth in people's mind that people that people who have this um, Islamophobia rhetoric is kind of like this middle aged white guy who you know lives in the backwoods. And that's certainly not true, because if you have, you know, the majority of Republicans voting for Donald Trump, then that's more than just middle aged white guys. Right. Inside of the college arena, do you find that this is a prevalent view? Do you have experience with it um, of people having kind of like this opinion that Muslims are, you know, are to be feared or, you know, have misconceptions about what Islam is? Is it prevalent? I think it varies. Um, I'm in a unique position because I go to a liberal arts college, so it's a little different. But even um, most recently, I saw the Yukon College Republicans completely denounce Donald Trump. Um, And you see a lot of a lot of college Republican type organizations and a lot of of young conservatives even denouncing this rhetoric. 
Um, so I, I think the youth are, are a little less inclined to support that kind of Islamophobia, even if they may have conservative views. But on the other hand, I absolutely have seen some people really latching on. But I think a lot of it comes from fear and a lot of it comes from miseducation. Um, when we talk about um, in just politics in general, um, how and this one is uh, Tara, you can you can chime in on this. How important mm-hmm. is it for political leaders to actually denounce uh, Islamophobia or Donald Trump? Or is silence a c- consent? Or and, and one in the Muslim community, we know that it, it, it definitely brings your attention to to galvanize Muslim votes when you have that denouncing. But when it comes to non-Muslims, do people find that it? it deters voters does it impact their 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 um ability to get votes or does it increase votes well we saw during the height of the president those the republican presidential campaign uh in the primaries we saw that the candidates who were the most islamophobic and uh articulate the most anti Muslim sentiment were handsomely rewarded with large donations in, in the next 24 to 72 hours in their campaign coffers. It is documented that the more vitriol they spewed about Muslims, the more well-funded their um, their campaign chest became. So there was a financial incentive for those candidates to articulate the hate that they were articulating against Muslims, which is very, very, very frightening when you think about the Islamophobia machine and the money behind it. That's that's no joke. That money, that support can make or break a candidate. So you see why they were each clamoring to get up and say something even more damning than the, the candidate before them had said, especially during their debates and on the campaign trail. Um, I think that it is very important for candidates to issue statements of condemnation against anti-Muslim rhetoric. And if they're brave enough to do it uh, explicitly, then I think that candidate deserves everyone's support. But if they are not brave enough or feel like the climate wouldn't support them taking that strong a role, then at least issue a condemnation against anti-religious sentiment or, or against bigotry. And you can use coded language so that people who read it understand you're talking about Muslims who need that sort of protection. Words matter. A condemnation matters, just like hateful words matter, supportive words matter. And I believe that every candidate, regardless of what position they're running for, local or on a national level, needs to have as a platform issue their position on religious bigotry. I think it is a, 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 a paramount issue on any, on any platform. Alicia? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, we need to urge every single leader to discuss this. And I, when you were talking about silence, I do think silence is a problem when we're talking about our elected leaders, uh, especially in communities that have Muslim populations. If your leader isn't willing to, to discuss Islamophobia and to, and to openly condemn Islamophobia, that should be a cause for concern. Um, I, I've been doing a lot of work trying to do things like that, urging state and local leaders to denounce different rhetoric. And I think it's important. And I think... When you go to the polls and when you go to elect local and state leaders, you need to think about who who stood up for your community and who stayed silent when when there was suffering. 
one of the things I think that that also that uh, is should not be overlooked is when um, when people do st- stand up for and speak against the rhetoric, I think that they should be rewarded as well. You know, we have so much money going into Islamophobia. And we have to really consider, you know, putting money behind anti-Islamophobia rhetoric. I think that that makes a difference because in the end, an election talks green. <laughs> no matter what other kind of talk it has, whether it's rhetoric or or not rhetoric, it, in the end, it, it talks green. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, the current events. So we talk. So we had this uh huge uh international debacle is what i call it a couple of weeks ago with france in the burkini right so let let, let me explain to the listeners what a burkini is <laughs> so several years ago a um a, a designer decided to create a swimwear that muslim women could wear that covers everything except for the face the hands and the feet that they could swim in and so she took the words bikini and burqa and combined it and called it a burkini so now several different companies makes this type of swimwear and what made it unique was not that you know in an outfit it looks pretty much like scuba diving gear or just a pants and a shirt but what made it unique was actually the material the material that um, most burkinis are made from it does not hold water the water slides right off it dries literally within I have one it dries like five minutes after you get out the water it's awesome <laughs> so um, so that is actually what a burkini is it's not like a burqa it's like a pants and shirt right <laughs> um, it's it literally is a pants and a shirt with a scuba diving hood connected to the top is what it what it actually looks like Um and so recently, a couple of weeks ago, there's been about 10 mayors in France that have banded on the beaches of France. And so it became a completely viral um, um, phenomenon. I know that anything that I posted on my social media um, about it, for it or against it, end up going viral. I put... Even for myself, you know, I, I I put a picture of me in my burkini when we went to Mexico and it ended up in a Huffington Post article. <laughs> you know, so I'm like scrolling and I'm like, oh, look, I'm in Huffington Post. <laughs> I always wondered how that happens. <laughs> but if you make it public, then they take it, <laughs> which is awesome. It's just fine. Um, so uh, what did you think, Alicia, when 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 you saw this? Um. Personally, I thought it was outrageous because it, it basically is like the stuff you wear for scuba diving. There's not much difference. And I, I couldn't believe people were were so caught up in that. Um, and what was more shocking was that I maybe you saw the picture of the police making the woman take off her her the top of her burkini. And I, I was appalled because the rationale I've heard from that side is, oh, you know, it's oppressive to women, but I think the true oppressive thing is telling women how to dress regardless of what they're wearing. So that was uh, interesting. And to hear? Yes. What was your response when you saw this, this, uh, the, what happened in France? Well, my response is that I know France is going through its own issues and its level of Islamophobia is totally off the chain. Um, it just, they're just 
seems to be a lot of issues that France has that in America, ours are just approached a little bit differently. But when I look at the discussion around the wearing of the burkini and just isolate it even to any controversy that will be here in, in the United States, I see it as a safety issue. The fact that you would intimidate a Muslim woman from wearing what is essentially a wetsuit. My 15-year-old daughter is a very, very good swimmer, and she wore sweat, um, a, not a sweatsuit, a wetsuit. She's worn a wetsuit. She's worn a burkini. And I think that if we make it burdensome, and um, unacceptable for a Muslim woman to swim. We are creating a possible dangerous situation for her and her family because swimming is a life skill. It is a survival skill. And if you preclude any group of people from being able to learn how to swim and how to swim, you're making it possible for them to to face dangerous situations in the water, not be able to save their children. I see it as much more deep than telling a woman just what she can wear. The impact of telling the woman what she can wear, the impact of making herself conscious when she goes to the YMCA or goes into to the water about what she wears will deter her from exercising a necessary survival skill. So we, especially when women are targeted for any additional scrutiny, we need to take that and examine it on much deeper levels. It's not just about her religion. It is about her safety. It is about the continued oppression of women is about the continued oppression of women by people who are not, not Muslim. We won't always talk about, oh, Muslim women and oppression. No, 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 no. The oppression of women runs deep and it's not about religion, but oftentimes it is because of her religion. This is something that I think that the other thing that that was brought to mind and that was brought up is that this is not something, as you said, that this is beyond just being a Muslim woman. It is the oppression of women, because in the 1920s, you know, there was the, the opposite here in the United States where the police actually went on the beach and made sure that the bathing suits were long enough. So the history, so they would literally measure the end of the bathing suit to the ankle. And if it was too, too much space, then you couldn't, you know, go on the beach with, with, with that particular outfit. And so now it's completely reversed and it is about women. And my, what I constantly say is that when you try to control what Muslim women wear, it is the exact same thing as slut shaming. Slut shaming is to assume mm-hmm. someone's intentions, their intelligence, their actions based on what they are wearing. Rather, it is just because you're wearing a bikini or you're wearing, you know, a mini skirt that that automatically means you're promiscuous just because you're wearing a hijab and you're all covered. That means you're automatically a terrorist. It's the exact same thing in reverse order. And I think that me personally, I feel like this is something that women advocates and feminists should have been right on and advocating. And I, and I did see some of the sharing, not just by Muslim women, but by non-Muslim women, um, particularly on my friend, 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 friend line, of course, because most of them know me. <laughs> um, but I think that it's something that should certainly have been um, looked at beyond just Islamophobia, just what, uh, what, 
people are doing to shame Muslim women and in terms of trying to free them and um, that Muslim women are oppressed. Oppression is, is, a, is a suppression of your freedom and dressing how you want mm-hmm. is kind of like the base of your freedom of who you are. You can express yourself through your dress. Doesn't matter whether that be covered up or if it means being naked. We don't, we don't, you know, if someone had gone on a beach and told a woman to put a shirt on over her bikini, it would over her bikini, you know, it would have been, you know, an outrage. But for somehow some people justify you doing the opposite. And I personally was like completely like, shock and flabbergasted when I see this picture of these four police officers standing around this woman forcing her to undress and I was thinking to myself can you just imagine what would have happened if that was if she did not have on hijab if it was just a non-Muslim woman that they literally told her take your your that's to me it was like visual rape I'm like I'm thinking like this is awful like how do you four men force a woman to remove her clothes just think about that for a second like that's just like how does that happen in 2016 i don't care what country you're in like if you're gonna force someone to remove their clothes like so i think and so also too we do want to note that the higher courts in france said that that particular that that law was not acceptable and they did reverse it so that cannot be enforced in france anymore but uh, as you pointed out france has its own problems around islamophobia and so we just sit with our hands on our cheeks waiting for france's next debacle (laughs) because this is Mm -hmm. this is so the interesting thing to note about this is that it is a series of things and i and i know that we're in america and that's in france but i think that it's important to pay attention because it shows us the progression you know a couple of years ago the first thing that france passed is that they said that mus that muslim women could not wear a hijab to school so young girls should, so they banned the hijab in public schools a couple of years later so what happened is people started sending their kids to muslim schools um and so a couple of years later they then created a law that banned girls from wearing skirts below their knees so now you're a couple of years later and they're trying to ban the burkini And they're forcing Muslim women to remove their clothes in public. So this progression is what's concerning. And that progression is something that I take note of when I look at what happens here in the United States. Because it starts off with rhetoric of a presidential nominee talking about banning Muslims. And it then progresses to people actually using verbal violence. Then it progresses to people using physical violence. So we have to take note of that. And I think that that's one of the important things that we that we need to um, be very aware of in our in America that. We are not, you know, we're all human beings and the society pretty much works in the same in the same um, um, progression. And we have to really take note of that. Um, So that's my spiel. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM on your radio dial, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka, where we're talking about Islamophobia, politics, and Muslim American women. With Tahira Amatul Wadud, civil rights lawyer, and Alicia Hernandez Strong, uh, community voting advocate. Um, and both of these women are hijab wearing Muslim American women. So let's talk a little bit about about that. It, the wearing hijab has become the visual uh, the the visual reminder to society that Muslims exist in America, right? So uh, the Muslim woman's dress is much different than a Muslim man who may be e- who may fit in a little bit easier. And so when people go to um, attack, generally Muslim women are the source of that attack. And it, and it doesn't even matter like where you are on a totem pole. pole. Like one of the, the, the interesting thing I think that um, – that I was glad that was reported widely. Even our new Muslim Muslima uh, heroine, <laughs> Ibtihaj Muhammad, <laughs> you know, a couple of weeks before she even went to the Rio Olymp- Olympics, um, she uh, she reported on Twitter of a, a gentleman following her in New York. Um, chastising her and telling her that she looks like she's going to blow something up and that, you know, that the police is that he's going to call the police. And she is an Olympian, you know, but when he saw her and he just saw her hijab, he did not know anything about her. People make this assumption when when they see hijab. Um, Tahira, tell me a little bit about how. So you have children and you have daughters that wear hijab. Um, how do you yeah. deal with with that in yourself in dealing with public? Because you're very public. You're a lawyer. You are very active in your community. You're on the commissions. You do things on the state and local level. Um, do you find that you you have any pushback or bad experiences because you wear hijab? And how do you prepare your daughters who are teenagers and and, and young adults um, uh, uh, about what they're going to experience now? Because it's very different than when, you know, I was 10, you know, and I started wearing hijab. You know, we're in a different time. Well, I it's funny because I I think I must be at a point in my life or my my attitude or my mind frame is such that I really don't notice or I zone out if I, if someone is hostile to me because of my appearance and maybe that's a a coping mechanism. I don't know. So I can't really give you an example of someone yelling something derogatory to me while I walk down the street or looking at me funny. But then I do carry myself very differently. I'm 42 years old. I, I'm educated. I've, I've done things in my life that I walked the earth a little differently than I did 10 years ago. But my 15 year old, but I'm, and I'm also careful about where I go. So I'm not likely just to go to just any rural corner store dressed this way. So I try to also minimize any exposure that I think would be harmful for me personally. But my 15 year old daughter, very beautiful girl, um, wears the tab. She goes into 
a local, not a local, we're about 45 minutes out. She, she goes into the grocery store. She says everybody's mouth drops when she enters. And they're staring at her. She's like, I will not go. It's a main, it is a main big supermarket. And she's like, no, I'm not doing that again. And um, it happened again yesterday where we went somewhere. She got out to put the gas in the car. And she's like, everybody's looking at me. So she feels that people are looking at her. And she's probably... So I understand why people are self-conscious and, you know, I've heard many stories of people saying negative things to young Muslim girls, threatening them. You hear, you see it on the internet, girls out for ice cream, somebody comes in, you're a terrorist, they take out the phone, they record it, it goes viral. It is definitely happening. It is definitely real. And it's, it's detrimental. I tell people when I speak to, to parents, grandparents, I say, to them that they have an obligation. If their children are not Muslim, their children don't necessarily have that target on their back, but they're in an environment that we're in. Their children fall into one of two classifications. Their children are either the bullies or they are witnessing the bullying. And if your children are good kids, then they are vicariously being tortured by watching that Muslim student in their class, for example, be tortured. And you can't imagine the stress that that puts a child on just to witness bullying. So we have a whole pocket of kids who are becoming sort of radicalized by this hate talk and this expectation that it's okay to target Muslims. And we need to check that because when you have this far right wing anger and hostility and it's trickling down to our kids, it's likely to result in school shootings right there in, in, in your own state, abortion clinic shootings, anti-government done in the name of God, et cetera. So all of this talk, all of this hatred does radicalize the minds of the right wing and their children. So we really, really have to step back and realize this is not just a Muslim problem. It is an American problem. Alicia, tell me a little bit about your experience with, with wearing hijab. Do you, do you, do you find it um, difficult? Do you, do you find yourself in, in situations where you have pushback because you wear it? Yeah, I've, I've definitely had people yell things at me from cars. Um, I, I've gotten go home, uh, which is ironic because my parents are actually military veterans. I've been, my family's been in America for quite a few generations. Um, but, but I've had people say that to me, especially online. I've had a lot of online harassment because my profile is public and people can just post whatever. Um, but I, I think also uh, my parents, my parents aren't Muslim, but when they're walking around, they notice more than me. They go, do you know everyone's staring at you? Um, and it's kind of something that I think I've learned to just ignore and brush off uh, because if people take the time to speak to me, they'll realize that I'm not just a stereotype or I'm not what they thought I was, you know, I have interests and I'm well-spoken and I'm friendly. Um, and, and, and if people actually speak to me, they realize that they realize that those, those preconceived notions aren't quite right. And I think, I think that's what I love the most um, speaking to people and, and kind of dispelling those notions that they had. Um, I, I have quite a few friends um, who come from, who came to school here in Connecticut from Virginia or from the South who have never met a Muslim before. Um, and they're shocked when they meet me and they're like, you're, you're nothing what I thought you were, but I, I'm glad to have met you. And I'm glad to have, you know, really learned about 
what Islam is and what Muslims are. So it's really really interesting that you say that because last week we had Bill Keese of Dukadus on, um, who was a uh, who's a, who was a basketball player and, and a very good one. And she said she said the same thing. She said that when she went to college and she met people who had never met a Muslim before, that her friends tell her, "Oh, gee, I didn't realize Muslim girls were so cool." <laughs> so I, I think that I think that's really interesting. So go say hello to a Muslim girl. You'll find out that she's cool and she's interesting. <laughs> uh, we are coming towards the end of the show, so I'd like you ladies to leave us with uh, what some some food for thought um two things so i always ask my guests to do two things at the end of the show one leave us with some food for thought about the topics that we that that are that we talked about and what our listeners can um just think about and 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 reflect on and tell people how to get in touch with you um um if if there's a way to get in touch with you tahira I'm sorry, guys, can you just say that one more time? So if you can just leave our listeners with some food for thought about the topics that we uh, that we just discussed and tell people how to get in touch with you. Yes. Yes, I, I feel that we are in this in this cycle. We are in the most enviable position because over the past 12 months, we've all become way more aware of the importance of engaging in, in this discussion and, and engaging in the political process and mobilizing the vote and encouraging others to do so. So I think we've had plenty of enough time to prepare for our activism, and I'm really excited that you're having this conversation, that our guest is there having this conversation and is a leader on her campus, and I would just ask that all of your listeners use their power, use their voice to continue to have these conversations um, get people to the ballot box, and even after the election, continue to hold our elected officials accountable for the things that are important to us. Know that we are powerful. Know that once we vote, it does give us a right to have our voices heard and let those elected officials know we're going to hold their feet to the fire and, the, and whether or not they're reelected in another two years or four years depends on how good they are to us and to the American people now. I really thank you for your activism, Mubaraka, for your voice and your support of this community and and this Muslim community. And how can people get in touch with you? Um, The best way to reach me, I'm on social media. My handle is my first name. It's Tahira. It's T-A-H-I-R-A-H and my last two initials, A-W. So Tahira A-W. I'm on Facebook. I'm on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and then my email address. You can use that handle with Gmail at the end as well. Okay, awesome. Um, Alicia, let, um, one minute, leave us with some food for thought. Yeah. Um, this is a really big election. We all know that. We all see what the stakes are. And while I urge everyone to vote in this election, don't forget that politics continues after this election. And there are really big elections in the state and local realm. Uh, and I urge everyone to get active and to participate because your vote matters and your voice matters and you can actually make a difference. Awesome. And how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, my Twitter handle is at a Maria a m a r i a seven two four, and then my Facebook is facebook dot com slash alicia strong c t a l i c i a s t r o n g c t. 
Awesome. And of course, you can uh, follow me and I will link you to all of them and their websites and their Twitter. Um, and you, you, we can use the hashtag MWM radio. I'll make sure I hashtag that so that you can be able to follow everybody. I want to thank you for joining us. This was a very enlightening conversation. Um, and I invite you to join me next week. We're at 10 a.m. here on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I want you to Remember that we want to be your voice and discuss topics that's relevant to your life. To go, So go to our website, morningswithmubaraka.com, click on the Contact Us tab, and suggest a show topic or give us feedback. Remember, if you don't live in New Haven, Connecticut area, where you can hear us on your radio dial at 103.5 FM, you can listen live stream online at newhavenindependent.org or find the podcast 24-7 in iClouds and iTunes by looking up WNHHS. LP and all of our uh, shows are on there. I want to thank you again for listening. And this is Mubaraka Ibrahim encouraging you to be a voice and not an echo.